I'm Peyton, and this is the Free Body Podcast, the podcast for everybody. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm feeling very jolly about this episode. I think Lee really slayed the conversation. This interview was truly a gift. Snowbody will disagree. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'd like to introduce Lee Edward Colston II, my friend and classmate from Juilliard. He's an actor and a writer from Philly, and most recently his writing for season four of Fargo has received critical acclaim, and his beautiful play, The First Deep Breath, opened to rave reviews in Chicago almost exactly a year ago. Today we talk about trauma and how it lives in the body, about Lee's work as a corrections officer and the body language of lying, as well as lessons learned while navigating racist institutions. This is Lee. I remember one of my earliest memories is like I was in kindergarten and uh, we were walking like my class, my teacher was like taking us on like a, we were going somewhere and this woman leapt out of the alley and she like poked me with something um, like a shard of something. I don't know if it was like a syringe or, or something or other. And uh, I think I was like maybe four or five years old. Uh, and she was like clearly having like some type of like mental health crisis. Yeah. And she just decided to come up and like, you know, like stab a five-year-old. Um, and uh, it hurt, but like, it didn't like hurt, hurt. It was more so was like, I was, I think it was one of those things where it was like, I didn't understand what was happening. Um, right. And so I was like looking at the adults uh to see how they were responding. And so like my teacher, she just like was really freaking out and like, mm-hmm. you know, like, I was, you know, like bleeding a little bit on my arm, not a lot. Um, but I just remember it was like, it was, I think that was the moment when I realized like how much power like adults can have over your body. And yeah, like, I mean, it, it was, and I also remember like, uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if she told my parents or not about what happened. Your teacher, you don't know yeah. if she... Because they, because they never brought, they never asked me about it. They never brought it up. So like when I think, when I look back in retrospect, I just don't think they, uh, they knew. After that happened, how did that follow that experience? How did that follow you as you continued growing as a kid? Uh, my life and, and my relationship to like, to my body was just like a series of things just happening to me, mm-hmm. um, which then made me have to like figure out how to like organize myself so things wouldn't happen to me. Um, right. Yeah, it was just like, I just, like my body just was not safe. And I, and I had to learn and understand that very, very, like, un, like I, I learned that or I understood that much sooner than my conscious brain understood it. That the way that I would like organize myself and the way that I would like take up space or not take up space, who I would, you know, go and hug or who I wouldn't go and hug. Like, yeah, I just remember you know, those shifts and not really having to, I don't know, like, uh, not really wanting to like feel unprotected in that way. What kind of things did you do to help yourself feel safe or protected? after? (laughs) Stay in the house, Uh, you know, being, being an introvert, uh, which is probably, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, I play with a lot of toys. Um, You know, I use my imagination a lot. Uh, because that was where it was safe. So it's no wonder that I became an artist. Um, 
like, you know, my, as far as like building relationships, like I just mostly with, with my cousins, one of my friends, um, cause like I have a huge, 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 massive family. And so yeah. like, uh, all of my, my first cousins were more like my siblings than my cousins. I mean, they're, they're still more like my siblings than my cousins. Um, and we all, we were all playmates, you know? So like we would go over my aunt's and my uncle's house cause we all lived in the same neighborhood, like five minutes from each other. And, you know, you go spend the weekend with over your aunt's house, or your uncle's house and play with your cousins and learn to rough house and climb fences and jump on rooftops and all the shit you do. And like, you know, the middle of the hood when, you, when you're a boy and you're growing up and you're trying to play. And so, I mean, like, I've never, this, this is so interesting because I've never really thought about like my life from like a body perspective before. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to start tracking. It is. A, it is an interesting thing to start tracking. When I think about things that happened to me when I was younger, I was like, oh, those were, at least for me, like little, little seeds that I would either help flourish or grow later on, or mm -hmm. I would like try to stifle and keep down and and that would affect my body in another way because I was, you know, holding on to something or holding on to some kind of body trauma because trauma lives in the body. Right. So as you're a kid growing up, would you say that you were mostly comfortable in your large family? Were you also looking outward for friendships from other places or did you just feel safer with people that you knew because of that event? Yes and no. Safety was a really interesting concept for me. Because I like, you know, like there were folks that I was safe with and there were folks that I clearly wasn't safe with and trying to sort through that, you know, like it was tough, like, you know, cause you're a kid, you're trying to figure, you know, you're just trying to be a kid and be, you know, you just want to play and eat junk food and, and stay up late when your parents let you. But I, I will say that like, you know, like I knew the relatives, the cousins, uh, that I was safe with and I knew the ones that I wasn't safe with. Like that mm -hmm. became, that became abundantly clear, like really, really young. So you became very good at reading people, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like, sense. like, like really, really young. Um, mm -hmm. Because like, you know, like uh, your body develops the response to like anticipate, you know, like how do you, how do you anticipate a threat? Is this person a friend? Is this person a foe? Like, you know, like sure. Like, you know, you may be related or sure they grew up in your neighborhood, but are you safe? Right. So you were you were super physical as like a, an adolescent. Yeah, I was a really athletic kid. You know, I used to run like a deer. You know, I wrestled in high school. You know, as a martial artist, those things were just like you know a huge part of my life. So that was where I got my fitness, and also just playing basketball in like in the neighborhood or playing football. You know, like with my friends or my cousins. Where did that come from? Like, what I guess inspired you, or what was the first thing that made you kind of go, "That's something I want to be doing." Um, most of most of my cousins were boys, so like you just that's what boys do. Your boys roughhouse and like you know yeah. hang out and shit like that. Yeah. Um, but also too, like in my household, I was the I was the oldest and the only boy, so I had my sisters. To, like my sisters were like my immediate playmates, right. and mm -hmm. my best friend, who like I really don't call him my best friend. I call him my, you know my big brother. Um, like he didn't come into the picture until I was twelve. But the thing, yeah, the thing that I really, you know, I really started to excel at was like wrestling and fighting. Why do you think that is? What did you love about it? Um, one, it runs in my family. And I also like learned a fun fact. I recently did my African ancestry. So like after that whole thing uh, in London, 
with the Edward Colston statue yeah, yes. and like my BBC interview. Uh, it kind of like put this like, you know, quest for me it was like, you know, I really want to know like, where do I come from before here? Yeah. Um, because like, I'm a part of legacies that are still changing the world. And so somebody put me on to like AfricanAncestry.com, which was like, which helps you to, and it's like, they're not paying me. I'm not plugging yeah. or anything like that. But like, this, <laughs> this is just my story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but they put me on to like AfricanAncestry.com and was like, oh no, you can like figure out like the specific region and the specific group of people that you yeah. come, you know, that you come from. So I learned where my folks are from, like where my maternal genetic ancestry is from and my maternal genetic ancestry is from. Wow. And so like my mother's side of the family uh, are from the Mafa people of Cameroon and my father's side of the family are from the Balanta people of Guinea-Bissau. But what I learned about Guinea-Bissau, the Balanta people, is that they, uh, one of the things culturally that runs uh, through that group of folks is that they are notorious wrestlers. Um, and really? It's a, and it's a huge, huge, huge part of the culture. Um, wow. So my father and my uncles were world like like they were incredible incredible wrestlers like like deck like trophies from now till forever you know like city championships state championships type things That's um so at one point cool. in time my dad and my uncles like they they had eyes on like going to the olympics but then there were things that got in the way because black boys growing up in the hood and so so that some of those opportunities got snatched yeah. Um, and then I became, you know, like a wrestler and a martial artist and like, and I'm, and I'm very good at it. And so it's just interesting to me that like, you know, it's in, in spite genes. of, it's, it's quite literally in my genes. And so like, wow. uh, in spite of this thing that is a cultural inheritance, you know, across a transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. across hundreds of years of oppression, that this quality um, this cultural quality of like, you know, being a wrestler, being an athlete, um, among other things, still is present in my family's life, like, like deeply in my family's life. It's a huge part of my family's history that no form of oppression could take. So that, that to me, is just, uh, that blew my mind um, and really made me think yeah. about, um, I am not just me, I am... I am all of us, you know, like, mm -hmm. and that my body has like this larger relationship that span, that's, that quite literally spans millennia. And yeah. so that every, you know, man who has ever been, you know, like uh, a part of my genetic line, every woman who's ever been a part of my genetic line, that they all intersect in me. Yeah. And I just think that's a really inspiring and cool thing, yeah. you know? And so, so then it makes me just wonder, what are the things that like that didn't get lost? You know, like mm -hmm. the, what are the things that I do that I have no idea that I'm actually doing this thing that like my great 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 grandmother did yeah. or my great 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 grandfather did? Like, I just think that's really really cool. It's amazing. I mean, that's astounding. It made me a little teary eyed, honestly. <laughs> it's like it's such a beautiful. <laughs> it's just such a beautiful thing when you can really like tangibly link yourself to your ancestors in that way, and like know that you're representing that your body and and who you are is representing like thousands and thousands of ancestors that have come before you. It's incredible. I mean, it's it's a thing that like white people take for granted, like. 
this was just a healing thing for me. Like I think about, you know, growing up all the times I hear white folks saying like, oh, like, you know, my, well, my, my grandmother is, you know, from the Czech Republic and my grandfather is French and like, you know, oh, like, you know, when my family got here, it's like, you know, through Ellis Island or just like, just knowing where your family's story starts before America. Yeah, until recently, I just didn't know what that was. And so now, like, when the world opens back up, I'm going to take a trip there. Yes. And so, like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a trip to those, to those places, and I'm going to take my family. That's awesome. And so, like, because I want that to be, you know, like, part of, like, you know, my, my life mission is to, like, is to break generational cycles mm-hmm. that are harmful mm-hmm. and to build new generational cycles. So... It's like, well, like, dope. This will be something that, like, you know, my nieces and nephews and, like, you know, my children, if I have any, like, will be able to pass down for generations. I know, like, when I told my parents, like, it was, like, late night. They were, like, laying in bed, and they got so emotional. And they were like, I didn't know this was something that I needed. Mm. And I was like, like, me too, Pop. Right. I mean, it make, and it makes so much sense. It's identity. It's such a huge part of mm-hmm. identity. And that is absolutely something that white people take for granted because we just, we get to know that thing. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you ended up doing that and now you get to pass it down. It's really great. Yeah, I think, you know, like I encourage like, you know, like all black folks to like, to do it. Like it's just, and it, and it, it costs a couple of bucks, but it's worth the investment. That knowledge is just, it's, it's, it's like a piece of you comes home. Well, I started in like Asianic martial arts forms when I was in high school, but then then I discovered an African martial art form, martial science uh, called Vidasana. Okay. And that opened up a whole different world for me because it was all the things that I loved about training as a martial artist, but it was rooted in my own culture. And one, I just didn't, you know, in my ignorance and in my youth, I was like, I didn't know that like there were like African martial arts. It was like, Duh, motherfucker, like, <laughs> life, start, life started in Africa, like, yeah. you know, there were civilizations, you know, that lasted for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had ways to protect and defend themselves. And so I had this amazing woman who began mentoring me. She really became like a, a second mom, and she was one of my martial arts teachers. When did you work with her? Uh, I was young. I was 17, wow. maybe 18. That's so great that you um, found that at that young age. Like, yeah, she was like, she was hugely influential. She came at the right time in my life to like help me discover myself. Mm. Um, and she really was like really good at challenging me to decolonize myself. And like, what's up? What are the things, like things that I just never thought to interrogate. She just challenged me to interrogate everything. As a 17 year old, I love it. I love it. Listen, <laughs> black women are amazing mm-hmm. and they, we just don't deserve them. Mm-hmm. We truly don't deserve them. Yeah. And this woman who is like every bit of like five foot one, um, you know, sweetest pie, deadliest snake venom. <laughs> and when, and, and she would just like give me lessons, you know, like while she was like sharpening her knives. Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> oh, she's like, you know, she'll like, you know, she'll be sharpening her machete and being like teaching me about like, you know, I don't know, like colonialism or like. <laughs> that works. Or like, that or works. Like the, or, or, the, or like the black empowerment movement. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, she'll be like, baby, hand me my other machete. Yeah. So like, you know, in the 70s when I was, you know, <laughs> like, and, and I just sat, you know, sat at her feet and listened. 
And she also, like, she taught me a different relationship to my body. She taught me what body discipline looks like. Ooh, talk to me about that. Yeah, so, like, I'll give you a prime example. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, one of the things that I've been doing to, like, you know, to stay sane in this pandemic is to, like, you know, go hiking. I just discovered it. Mm -hmm. Like, Columbus. (laughs) Um, So, like, I have Columbus, uh, Runyon Canyon. 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 It did did not exist until I discovered it. And so yesterday I was hiking with a friend and I was exhausted and I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like doing it. And so I'm at the bottom of like, we, like, I don't know why my brain just like naturally like took my body or my body just took my brain to like the hardest side of the canyon oh, to right. hike. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's just like a really, really steep incline. Yeah. And that's really the only, it's like, it's also the road less traveled. So there's not as much foot traffic there because it's harder. Right. And so, like, you know, to, to stay away from people because of, like, my asthma. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the Rona is a real thing. It is. Uh, and so. It's purple uh, in L.A. right now, right? It's, like, child, crazy I, over there. I don't know. Because I can't tell you what ha- what's happening You're in L.A. I can tell inside. you what's happening. Yeah. In my, I can tell you what's happening in my house. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you what's happening, you know, like, uh, on my block. I can't tell you what's happening in Los Angeles. Because right. I don't. I don't <laughs> Los I'm Angeles sorry to who? This man. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know her right I don't now. know her. <laughs> so, so we're so so like I'm hiking and I'm like and I look at my boy and like as soon as you hit this part of this hike it starts on a really really steep incline yeah and so I look at my boy and I was like yeah we probably only going to do half of this today because I'm exhausted I don't feel like doing it mm-hmm. and I'm like slugging my way like up the side of this fucking mountain and about maybe a quarter of the way through I, I literally was like I'm really really tired like I just kind of remember like the lessons that I got from Mwalimu Taliba, mm-hmm. which is, uh, that's her name. Mwalimu is her title. Her name is Taliba. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And so, yeah, I was just like, I was like, I'm exhausted. She was like, oh, good. You're exhausted. Now run. Wow. She's like, now run up, the, now run up this mountain. Run while you're tired. She's like, because if you can do it while you're tired, then you can do it when you're strong. So I started running. And then my boy was like, oh, okay, <laughs> like, that's, that's what we do. All right. And so I run as far as I could until I couldn't run anymore, until I had to stop and hit my inhaler. Mm. Um, you know, breathed for a little bit, ran a little bit more, stopped, hit my lungs again, <laughs> and then just like clawed my way to finish this fucking hike. Don't you know when I got to the top of this, the top of this damn mountain that my usual time for like getting from the bottom to the, to the top of this mountain is like 45, 50 minutes. Don't you know I did that motherfucker in like 25 minutes? Oh <laughs> not, not trying to beat my time. Wow. Like, yeah. but it was, it was just like do it tired, do it exhausted, you know? And so like those body discipline lessons, Mm -hmm. you know, like when I was in Mashule, which is Swahili for school, Mm -hmm. uh, martial arts, like like a martial arts school, and Mali Mutaliba, you knew that she was gonna, that you were about to die, like, you know, doing a workout when she was smiling and she said, keep up with the old lady. You know, keep up with the old lady. And you're like, oh fuck, we're about to, she's about to, she's about to kill us. And then everything that she would do would be like you. You would think that she was training for 2020. Yeah, <laughs> like, God. like yeah, like she, like she was training, like she was training for like the world to explode. And she was like, "You will be ready on my watch." Yeah. And then, like, and then when we're not training, she's like, "How you doing, baby? You hungry? You got enough to? Let's, I'm, I'm gonna bring you some food. Like, you, you, you need, you need some sugar. You need, need some money. Like, she's super, super sweet. Mm. And then." While you're training, it's like, let's go. Yeah. She's just like very intense, you know, woman. That type of work ethic is quite literally coded into my body. 
So I know that I work 50% to 150% harder than like most of the people I know. And most of the people I know are really, really hardworking people. And anytime there's a problem in front of me, it's like, you know, I just get obsessive about it. It's like, I'm going to put like, you know, everybody else asleep and it's like four in the morning. I'm like, just five more minutes. <laughs> I just got to, I just got to figure out this, you know, what does this moment mean on the Ooh. page? Or like, what is this story thing that I'm trying to crack? So it's just, it's just interesting how that code, that kind of discipline then starts to find its way into like, you know, other parts of your life, which then I think is also like informing like the success that I'm starting to find in my career. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, like I just assumed that everybody works as hard as I do, but then I realized like everybody doesn't. Yeah. Everybody, everybody doesn't work as hard as I do. And you, and you know me, you yeah, know me well. I do. So you, you know, I'm a crazy person and I'm <laughs> obsessive when it comes to like trying to like do, do anything. You'll get it done. I will get it done, yeah. even if it kills me. Wow. And so how long was she training you from 17 until? I mean, like, she's still training me in a lot of ways. Like, I'm not in the shoelay, obviously, because, like, I live in L.A. now. Right. But, like, if I call her just to say hi, and she's like, when's the last time you worked out? And I'm like, wow. oh, I don't know. Like, it's been, like, two or three days. She's like, you know what you should do? You should just give me 50 push-ups right now while we're on the phone. She said, go ahead, baby. I'll wait. And I'm like, really, in Wally Moon? She was like, mm hmm. She's like, do you need me to do them with you? I'm like, no, ma'am. <laughs> and so, like, and she, she's like, you can FaceTime me. I'll watch. Wow. And, I love it. And so, like, I'll, I'll FaceTime her uh, and then she'll watch me. She was like, call him out. Loud and proud, you know, like. <laughs> And I'll just do, and I'll just like, I just called to say hello. <laughs> I didn't call and you to end up like, doing 50 push-ups. <laughs> and I end up doing 50, 50 to 100 push-ups. Oh uh, just because, and, and because she, you know, like, out of, I cannot refuse her out of respect, you know. She is and will always be my teacher. Mm-hmm. And she is and always will be uh, a second mother. And, you know, like, she has not steered me wrong since. So I started working in the prison system when I was a teenager in the commissary. Because my father was a CO and he wanted to keep me close. And so he got me a job working in the commissary like during the summers. And so I would be in the commissary and like, you know, the guys would come and purchase like toiletries and, you know, junk food and radios and TVs and shit. And those the brothers who... Uh, you know, I was like the cashier and they would like work the back of filling the orders right. or whatever, but we're in this big room and it's just us. And you're a kid. Yeah. I was, I was basically a kid. Yeah. I was a teenager. And, you know, like some of these guys weren't that much older than me. Some of them were. Um, but for the most part, they were like in their twenties and thirties, you know, some, one guy I was working with was like a year and a half older than me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I learned, I mean, I'm so thankful for that experience in retrospect because I, one, I got to know those guys really, really well. And, you know, like you work in close proximity with anybody, like you start to share stories and compare stories and, and our stories were just so similar. Hmm. And it really was just like, yeah, like the only difference between me and anybody who's incarcerated is the right set of circumstances on the right bad day. Right. Right. And also like all the like societal and systemic things that lead to incarceration. It's not just, it's not always because somebody did a bad thing. Right. In fact, you know, oftentimes uh, it's not, it's not that, you know? So like, 
that was that was work yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and I would like, you know, ride it with my father and ride home at the end of the day. And so then I went to community college and studied theater. And then once I graduated, like, you know, I knew I wanted to, you know, to be an actor and to be a writer and to direct and do all the things. But I had nobody to look to to chart a path for that because nobody coming from my neighborhood ever did anything like that, really. So my dad was like, you know, like, so what do you want to do? And it's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, so you figure it out, you know, like you're going to go and take this civil service test uh, and become a and become a guard. Um, and that was at 21. Like I became a guard at 21. And so like I didn't want I didn't want to do it. And I was trying. I was like, no, dad, I really want to go like pursue actor training. But at the time, I didn't know that you could go to college and study that. I didn't know that you could read that there were actual schools that taught that because they don't you know, advertise those services in my in neighborhoods that I grew up in. Like University of the Arts, where I ended up going for undergrad, is a conservatory style university that's literally in my backyard. I had no, I had no idea it was there. Yeah. I rode past that building a billion times. I didn't know what it was because they don't they don't advertise to kids in my neighborhood. Did you find it because you went looking for it, or did you finally like stumble across someone who told you about it? I stumbled. How did I find it? While I was working in the commissary, I applied for Juilliard the first time. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Because I saw Save the Last Dance. Yeah. And was like, <laughs> and which was the first, you know, it's like, oh, what is this, you know, this movie? Oh my God, Julia Stiles is the greatest dancer in the world. Do you want to do it, Sarah? I mean, you. Do you want Juilliard? Yes. Yeah, that's got to be one of the best like advertisements for that school of all time. Ever. 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 <laughs> what a nice thing for them. And, so, <laughs> and then I was like, it was so easy for this white girl to get into this this school that they say was so hard to get into. Have you seen her dance lately? Did you have you rewatched oh that God. dance? Because holy crap. Yes. Oh, no. I love the video that like, go viral of like, yeah, uh, people clowning her like, yeah. Oh, uh, poor like, Julia. like, or, or not clowning her, but like the clowning the choreography. Yeah, like, like, what is that? It was like, it was like, it was like chair dancing. It's chair dancing, chair but dancing. it's but it's doubly funny. Like now that we're like Juilliard alums, yeah, because absolutely like, and so not. We know. <laughs> Nothing like was <laughs> what is at that school. Fascinating to watch that movie now. Um, okay, yes. So say the last dance. So, yeah, continue. So, so, so I'll say the last dance, and then discover like you know that Juilliard existed, and then went to you know went to go Google it. Or no, it wasn't Google then. It was something else. Right. But like, went to go like the phone you know, book, the phone <laughs> the book or some shit. You know, the yellow pages. You know, I'm a dinosaur. Um, and hardly. <laughs> and and looked it up and was like, oh, this is where like you know actors train. I would be at the prison during the day and coaching, you know, like with a woman uh, at night and memorizing lines and so like mm. the the guys who were incarcerated and working in the commissary were like i would have like my print out of my script and while i was working the you know the cashier they would you know be like running lines with me and making sure that uh so that i was letter perfect it was like no you missed a word man because what it says is da, 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 you know like <laughs> some of the hardest most brilliant directors i've ever worked with are incarcerated and and i, I auditioned didn't get in um got caught got called back but didn't get in and I think years passed, like I ended up, you know, when I became a CO, same thing, like, you know, auditioned again, the brothers on the, on, on the unit discovered that, you know, that I was an artist. And so they kind of held me accountable mm. um, to pursue it. And, you know, it was like on my ass to audition for Juilliard again and got called back, didn't get in. But that time 
I was like, you know, that was my second time. You only get two tries to apply to, you know, to apply to the school. So I was like, oh, I'm done. Like, oh, it's my dream school. So like, I'm not, I guess I can't go. And I, I guess maybe this artist thing is just not going to happen. And I started writing. I started writing on a cell block, which is like my introduction to like writing. And so all of that creative energy that was like trapped in my body started finding its way in like the form of a poem. I started to notice other bodies. Mm-hmm. My job forced me, you know, trained me to like really have to zero in on, yeah. on bodies and behavior. Yeah. Talk more about that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, like you learn to track deception. You learn when people are being honest with you and when people aren't. You learn when people are trying to get over it on you. You were quite literally some of the best liars and hustlers in the world, which then like, you know, you just learn to unpack that. Which is like, you know, it's very, very hard to bullshit me. <laughs> uh, and like, I mean, you know, and you know, like, you know this, you know how, you know how I roll. Yeah, like, yeah. it's very, very hard to yeah. like to pull one over on me. If you do, like, I, I don't even get mad. Kudos. I'm like, you did. I'm <laughs> like, did you that. did that because <laughs> I'm a hard motherfucker to lie to. Uh, and I don't usually comment, like, you know, I've learned to just like not comment on stuff. But like, I'll see something and I just smile and go, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> I know exactly what's going on. How do how does mm-hmm. how do you find deception manifests in people's bodies? Are there like the body geez, doesn't lie? The body doesn't lie. Yeah. Absolutely, the body does. The body does not lie. The body, human beings are not wired to be deceptive. We are wired to to be truthful. We learn to be deceptive as a way to protect ourselves from harm. Mm-hmm. And so there are there are cues that the body does. Uh, so there's behavior and then there's micro behavior, and it's micro behavior can't like does not lie. And so like your mouth can be saying one thing and then there's several things that are happening across your body from your face to like the way you breathe, to the way you hold your hands, to the way you stand, where you place your weight, where you decide to stand in a room or in a space, you know, like how often you touch your face or your mouth or whatever. Like, I mean, there's just so many different cues, like visual cues that operate independently of one another to build up into a gestalt of like micro behavior. And so like when you learn to like read those things individually and like once establishing like what is a person's baseline behavior for like when they're telling the truth, then you can Mm -hmm. start to just pay attention to like, well, when does that behavior deviate from what the baseline behaviors for a person who's being honest versus the baseline behaviors for when a person's being deceptive. But I, mm-hmm. I will say though, like with knowledge comes responsibility. Cause like human beings lie all the time. Uh, and we, we don't like to admit that about ourselves. No, that, like, don't. you know, we like, I always tell the truth. No, we're not. No, we don't. We don't. We're liars. <laughs> it's, you know, like some things you just don't, sometimes you, you want to be lied to. Right. You don't, you know, like yeah. we don't want to be told the truth all the time. We want to believe the lies a lot of the time. And so like, it's a, it's a weird thing when you're like, you know, you ask your grandma a question and your grandma's like, you're like, grandma, you're lying to me right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, grandma telling you a story and you're like, oh yeah, you know, like, you know, it's a good thing he's your father. And you're like, wait a minute, grandma, your behavior says up. he's not like, what's going on? Like. <laughs> Oh that's a good point you know what I mean? like, <laughs> that's much responsibility yeah so you don't want to you know like there are things that you can you know like once you learn how to see it you also have to learn how to like unsee it too yeah yeah and it's it's a curious thing to me linking it with like acting and I always feel mm-hmm. like as an actor when people say actors are liars I'm like no that's the thing we like the can't lie we that. have to believe the circumstances 
to so be true. much <laughs> to be truthful. So it's kind of like we we are not liars, but we might be a little insane that mm-hmm. you know where we can like put ourselves in imaginary circumstances and actually believe that they're happening because your body doesn't know the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're if you're really imagining something and letting that affect you, your body won't know the difference between you know. A, re- a real situation and what you're acting on stage. That's why mm-hmm. it costs so much to be an actor. Um, yeah. But that always drove me crazy. I'll add to that too. Like the other yeah. part of it too, like when, you know, as a part of like our training is you can't lie in your body 23 hours of the day and then expect mm-hmm. to be truthful for two hours on stage or in front of a camera. Ooh, that's good. That's good. And, and so like, because you make an agreement with your body. Yeah. One of the things that like, uh, that I struggled with, struggled slash struggle with, is trying to find a moment, like a really deep and uncomfortable or vulnerable moment. And I'm like, why is this moment so hard for me to get into? And then the conversation mm-hmm. I'm having with my body is like, well, bro, you told us that we can't go to these places. You said it's too dangerous to go to these places. Yeah. yeah. And so now you're trying to like, you want to do this for fun? You have to choose which one is it. Either it's like when, you know, when we're in this type of circumstance, our body expands or we're in this type of circumstance, our body retracts. Which one is it? And whatever it is, you got to be consistent. So the body asks, the body demands that the mind be a body of its word, if you will. Whatever it is that we do, like, you know, it's like I need in the moments in my personal life when. I feel that type of discomfort. Like I always like, I know what my initial safety response is. And then I make a choice to be like, nope, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to expand into this. I'm going to breathe into it. I'm going to feel these feelings because if I don't feel them now, they're going to be stored away somewhere else. It's going to cause me problems later. And through adopting that practice of like, not of trying not to avoid discomfort. And I'm still working on that. I notice that I've become a better actor. I've become a stronger artist. I'm able to access more depth in my work by living in that discomfort space. You have to kind of make a conscious choice about how you want to live your life. <laughs> yeah. Like expanding or retracting. Yeah, I mean, like, like Juilliard gave me like a, a pluralized experience uh, with yeah. that. There, was, there were oh, things yeah. that there were things that were good mm-hmm. for me, and there were things that weren't good for me. And we're gonna go left. into a little bit of that, I think. <laughs> if you want, we could talk yeah, about Yeah, I mean, it. listen, you know, I'm down. You were about to talk about when you got hurt and your knee. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And stuff. And I know that that links forward into this conversation as well, if you want to start talking about that. So part of my larger relationship to my body, which kind of goes back to like, you know, this the first part of this conversation about like, let's talk about like things happening to me, right? And so, like, my body has been beat up so much and abused so much. It's a wonder that, like, that I'm able to, like, move through this through the world in a way that I do. And I thank my art for that, you know, for, like, my art providing a space for me to heal while I was going through, like, intense, you know, abuse. And I learned a different relationship to my body in grad school when I really started to discover what it means to have a Black body. Like I understood my relationship to my blackness, right? And and I always, always lead with that, you know, with yeah. tremendous, tremendous pride. But one of the things I discovered is like, I really understood like the power locked inside of a black body, just by like, just not doing anything. If I just stand still, that my body shifts space and that the space 
that the context of a space uh, shifts depending on what space I'm in. Hmm. So like, uh, and that's true for like most bodies, but I learned that black bodies are politicized whether we want them to be or not. Whether I, I intend for my body to be politicized, whether I don't intend for my body to be politicized, like it's going to be without my permission. So like I hurt my knee right before I did the Broadway tour of The Color Purple. And so I had this like knee injury from like a fight. Martial arts? Martial arts, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like in the gym and I like fucked my knee up really, really bad. And like I never, but I never like went to, I didn't have like money for surgery or anything like that. And, you know, and so I just kind of like, it just healed this weird funky way. But in a way that like I could still like live my life and be athletic and do things, but it never quite healed, right? And so when I was a first year at the school, we were doing like that intense cardio class at the top of the day. And one day there was there was something that they asked us to do. And I and I moved with the intention of like doing the thing. And my body was like, nope. And my knee just like I felt it snap. You know, like being an athlete, like, you know, like my brain is always like, Are you hurt or are you injured? And I'm, you know, like really trying to figure out like which one is which. And it was like, I think I'm injured. And then I got up and I tried to walk on it. I was like, oh, no, I am hurt. I can't. I actually cannot walk. And you were like, you were there. You remember all of it. Like, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like I, yeah. like, I literally could not walk. And so, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do with it, any of that. So then I had to go get, like, evaluated. And, and fortunately, I had health care through the school. And so, like, uh, they went to go look at my knee. And they were like, yeah, this is a pretty intense He's like, he's like, I only see injuries like this in the NFL, <laughs> like in the NFL and uh, in the NHL. Do you remember what it, what it was exactly that you, did you t- tear like the ACL or something? I tore my ACL and my meniscus and, uh, oh, no. and like did, I did something funky to my patella and like my right knee was just like, it was just, I, I fucked it up really, <laughs> really bad. So I remember like, you know, preparing for surgery and like, mm. you know, my surgeon, like I, I went to the best place in Philly that you can get surgery at. Uh, and it's like that my surgeon was like, he operated on the Eagles, like the Philadelphia Eagles oh um, and, and, wow. the, and the Philadelphia Phillies. So like he was like one, he was like he was like one of the like top sports doctors yeah. there. So I kept I was like, listen, it's like I'm an athlete and I'm in, like I'm a first year at Juilliard. It's like I have to be able to like to run and jump and move and do things. I was like, please take care of me. He was like, I got you. And so he took care of me and like they gave me like. The Mercedes Benz treatment, you know, like of healthcare. Um, oh, that's awesome! It was amazing. I was like, thank, shout yeah. out to the Juilliard Healthcare because it it, it, yeah, really, yeah. it really took care of me. Um, me too. <laughs> and so, right, I remember <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few times. <laughs> a few times, but so like the healing process for that though was like the tr- there was a lot of trauma that came from the school because they did not believe that I was hurt. What did they? Yeah, they did like like they, like they believed it, but like because they like they knew that I had to go to do the surgery or whatever. But like the time that it took to heal, they put a lot of pressure on me to jump back in before I was ready to jump back in. Every time I would sit down, they were like, you know, like I, I felt like I was being shamed for getting hurt, and it was just like, well, you know, like we would do evaluations. Right. It's like, well, you know, I would love to give you an evaluation, but you're you know you're hurt, so I can't. I guess. You know, hopefully, you know, this, this doesn't impact the kind of actor you become. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Was that, was that uh, a universal reaction, would you say? Or were there some 
teachers that were not. There was there was there was there was some who were who were empathetic, but it felt like a universal reaction. I think I mean the story that I'm telling myself, and I don't know because I wasn't there. But what it felt like, what my experience felt like was that during, you know, like when they get together, they talk about us before the uh, individual evaluations. It felt like the running narrative was Mm -hmm. that I was trying to get out of the training for whatever, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, but why would you want to do that? That's what blows up. Well, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I love rigor. But, you know, like I was one of two black men. In my group, one of five black people in in our group, and I was a black man. Like I wasn't like JJ, who was like who who was young, like who was younger and still like kind of kind of like growing into himself. Like I was a yeah. grown ass motherfucker and somebody who grew up athletic. So I knew like I knew my body when something was right, yeah. and I knew and I was like, if I hop back into doing Moni too soon, what's going to happen is I'm going to hurt myself in a way that I won't be able to recover from. And these white people are telling me to like you know. These white people think that they have my best interest in mind, but they really don't. They're trying to serve whatever their agenda is. And so like I had to, I was forced to really like stiffen my spine and push back and being like, I am not doing that until I am ready to do that. And that was not received well. And so I had some of the like most, like, ooh, I learned how passive aggressive white folks are, um, especially like white folks in power. And I learned the harm that that does, which then the unexpected lesson that I got was to that passive, the passive aggressiveness that comes from that's born out of white supremacy, how damaging that is to me as a person, but also like to a black body. I learned uh, the un, the lesson that they did, that the school did not mean to teach me, but that I learned was how to get really specific in naming what is happening because mm. I was being gaslit and made to believe that like what was happening to me was not happening to me. Reading and studying James Baldwin and just being like, how did like, what would James Baldwin do? WWJD. What would he do? What would James do? Yeah. One of the things I learned about James Baldwin is like, you know, I really, really a huge admirer and student of his work. I said, James never argued with white people. James, James will spit facts and have white people argue with facts. Mm. And he's like, I don't know if this person is racist or not, but I know that they do this. I know that they do this and I know that they do this and I know that they do this. I can't tell you if the school is racist, but I can tell you that the school does this and the school does this and the school does this and the school does this. And these are the facts. That experience coupled with some of our classmates buying into that hype and not understanding like, you know, that black bodies deserve to be protected too. And yeah, and like, and like, so experiencing that into, you know, like from multiple angles, I really learned what it feels like to for a black body to be under psychological attack. Like I understood that like growing up in my neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, I'm surrounded, like where I grew up, I was surrounded by other black bodies. So at least we had like, uh, at least we could lean onto each other. And it was like psychological attack was like systemic. The interpersonal thing was like, oh, like I'm not, I'm actually not safe. I'm not being protected. And then like, for me, like I'm grown, I'm a muscular, you know, black dude. People don't look at me and think a sensitive creature that needs to be protected, which is not fair. Right. And so, yeah, I had to, I had to learn that on my own. And that really galvanized me to build community, like with the black artists at the schools. One of the reasons why I was so on fire and passionate about it, because I knew that I was not the only 
black body in that experience that was ex- that was feeling those feelings and that was under that kind of attack and that we weren't we didn't have solidarity yeah. and so i would challenge all the black folks in the program you know like in our group and other groups to be like no actually i think it's important that we start naming how we're hurting i mm-hmm. think it's important that like um you know for our colleagues who are well-intentioned white people to like when they say some dumb shit to call y'all out on y'all shit and to not do it like because this thing that we do is like you know we'll talk but then we're like, like when, we, cause when we're talking about how we're hurting like you know we got we don't right. want people to hear right. you know like you know like like because there's shame around like this there's so much shame around naming how your body is being harmed and 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 for people who move through space with black bodies where our default is to operate under the assumption that we're not going to be protected. And that to even to speak our experience out loud invites attack. Yeah, it puts yourself in danger. It's so much danger. And so like, I, so, so those were like, in addition to like becoming a, a, you know, a stronger actor and a stronger writer, the experience of like how my body interacted with that institution strengthened my muscles to be able to articulate to the molecule what is happening, why it is happening, and what are the multiple things that are enabling these things to happen, you know, from a historical context, from an institutional context, from a socio-political context, from a race, gender, like all of those, all those different intersections. I had, as a way to survive the experience, I had to learn how my body and other bodies sit in our respective intersections in order to be able to like survive. It's funny, like, you know, I was, I was on a call with like some producers recently and we had like a really great conversation about like, you know, this project that we're working on together. And, you know, they like, you know, complimented me. Uh, it's like, you're really good at talking about these things. And I was like, it was like, oh, we just wish, you're like, you know, like, I don't know how you learn how to do that, but I wish I had that. I was like, actually, you don't. I was like, because I learned, like, how I got to this place. I got it through trauma. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I got it through, like, you know, uh, um, having to try to figure out how to, you know, be successful in an environment where the people that I trust with, you know, the vulner- the softness and vulnerability of both my mind and my heart are trying to, like, you know, expose yourself and be vulnerable while also attacking you. And then mm-hmm. the colleagues that you've, are supposed to be in the trenches with don't yet understand their relationship to their white bodies and how those white bodies impact you right. and don't yet understand their larger responsibility. I mean, you know, it's, it's the reason that like, you know, white people discovered racism in 2020 right, this summer, right, like right. white people, white people discovered racism in June right. of this year. And like, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many like guilty ass texts and phone calls that I got that I'm sure like, you know, all the black folks listening will remember in June, like we heard from more white people, <laughs> more, we, we, heard, we heard from more white folks, you know, in, in June, 2020, just popping out the woodworks than like in our entire lives. Like June, 2020, I understood what it felt like to be a pumpkin spice latte. Oh, damn. Like, I, underst- <laughs> I understood, <laughs> I understood. Like I was like, this what is this, this is what it feels like to be this decided. Oh shit. Oh, and there's yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Man. But I'm also like, 
I wouldn't change anything though. I wouldn't change anything because like there's a strength and resilience that I have as a result of like the things that I survived that I know most people don't have. Um, and it's, it's made me tough as nails while also learning how to be really, really sensitive to. And so to like this balance in my humanity that, that I think that I am starting to fall in love with yeah. again. And, you know, shout out to therapy. You know, therapy is a beautiful thing. Shout out to therapy. God bless therapy. Uh. <laughs> So for the tea section, I want to ask, is there a silver lining to 2020? And, and what, would that, what would that be to you as far as it relates to your body in this where you're kind of we're all being forced to like be still and take stock of our lives in a way? And how has that manifested in you this year? America's going through its terrible twos. You know, I look at, I don't look at, I don't look at things like from an individualized standpoint. Like I look at things and like, like here's what's happening, but also like what's the larger generational arc on the spiral of history. And so I think what 2020 is offering us is we're going to look back on uh, the Trump administration and we're going to see that there's going to be a kind of like a one, it's not going to give folks like plausible deniability. You know, like we're not going to be able to say that, like, that America isn't ugly. Right. That America has just as much ugly as it do- as it does beauty. Now, for me having a black body in this country, that beauty is fleeting, oftentimes, and I don't have the same optimism for this country as, like, you know, most folks do. But I do think that, like, out of this experience, the pendulum's going to swing back. And we'll, you know, we'll find our two steps forward and that two steps forward will last maybe a generation or two or three if we're lucky. Um, and then the pendulum will swing, swing back again. I mean, that's just the way progress works. We are a very young country still. I think about like, you know, uh, I mean, I've been discovering for myself, like as I'm getting older, like, and I'm like, well, what does that like, how does that impact my body? What is the body that I want to build for myself in the future? Because I think we are in conversation with like the, the past, present, and future parts of ourselves all at the oh, same time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And thinking about like, you know, my body context. So I've been thinking about like, well, what for the next decade of my life, mm-hmm. what kind of relationship do I want to have to my body? And what are the things that like I've inherited generationally that like I don't want? Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't want diabetes. I don't want high blood pressure. Like I, once I learned that like those are optional diseases. And not genetically predisposed diseases. Like, really, I just got to, like, eat less of this shit and, like, go on a fucking walk from time to time. Like, and I can, like, solve that problem. I was like, okay, great. But I also realized how much environment plays a huge, huge, huge part of that. Which kind of goes back to, like, you know, like, me, you know, me Columbusing, hiking, you know, like, in the last two months. And, you know, and joking, being like, you know, like, oh, hiking is a thing that white folks do. Um because environment, like when you have access to environment to be able to do those things, that actually does shape your body, which then shapes your long-term health, which shapes the length of your life. And your mental health. And your mental health. I can't go on a like on a leisure, like on a gingerly walk through North Philly right. and still be safe as much as I would love to, but it's just not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not safe to do that. 
I know how to go on a leisurely walk in my own, you know, in my own hood, but like, it's just not the same experience where it's like now I can go somewhere and be with nature and like spend time with myself. You know, generational wealth is not always monetary. Yeah, that's so true. Right. And so sometimes it's just like space to be with yourself to make discoveries. And, the, and some of those discoveries shape the direction of your life. So being able to have your body be safe enough and be left alone and to be able to exist without threat of death, just to be able to breathe and have an idea is a revolutionary thing for Black folks. Have you read My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menicum? Writing it down. It would be so on point, especially for this podcast that you're doing. Um, Because it it, it examines like race through a body experience. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't like, you know, because a lot of times it's like uh, the way that like racism and like all of these systems are described through like an intellectual thing. It's like, well, why don't we, like, why are we not able to just like solve this? We we know what it is. Like many people have written about it. So why can't we just like fix it? It was because a lot of these things that like are locked inside of the body and and operate passed down yeah and so like he has this wonderful uh saying that like that like trauma that loses context over the course of generations can look like a personality oh wow yeah that's so it talks about like you know what are the coded messages that we have around black bodies what are the coded messages Mm -hmm. program messages that we have around white bodies what are the coded messages that we have around police bodies and and how do those things intersect with one another? Just talking about it from a body standpoint. I mean, I'm I'm on a journey of healing this year, um, healing my body, and like you know, like I I gave myself a challenge um, that like for the next year, like I, I really want to be the healthiest that I can be. What does that mean? You know, like and so I've been I'm I've been examining that. Like so that means that like okay, so that means I need to build a healthier and stronger body, like a healthier and stronger heart, mm-hmm. a healthier and stronger mind. Um, you know, what are all the different ways that like uh I can redefine uh my body for this next chapter of my life? Yeah. Um and so like and then also like do things now that future me will look back and be like that pat that pastly he a real one so you know like <laughs> yeah yeah so so I'm, I'm trying to do the things now so then when i look back you know like uh in the next 5 10 15 years that i that i'll just be really grateful that i started so so that's the so, so that's my silver lining that's what 2020 has actually offered me that's the space to do that the last segment of the podcast is called the cherry on top And it's basically just any kind of parting wisdom that you would like to say to listeners out there. Maybe it's something that you would say to a young Lee. One of my favorite quotes is by this motivational speaker uh, named Zig Ziglar. And he says, the chief cause of failure and unhappiness is people give up what they want the most for what they want right now. Mic drop. (laughs) end of episode (laughs) honestly though for the tea section for this tea section i feel like we should have had glasses of wine or something instead of tea it should have been called like the cocktail hour we can do a second take
learn more about Lee by finding him on Facebook or Instagram at That's Mr. Colston to You, linked in the notes of this episode. And if you want to keep hearing more body stories, please subscribe, rate, and review. I really hope you have a fantastic holiday. I am not sure yet if I'll take the week off, so just keep your eyes on the Instagram at Free Body Podcast for updates. Until next time, stay well.